All right, well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. It's been a while since we've been there, and I ask you to open your Bibles to, with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, as we continue our study of this great Gospel that we've been studying for some time. And I want to begin our time this morning with a question. <coughs> Well, the question, and the question is simply this, is Jesus Christ sufficient for every need that you have in life? Is Jesus Christ sufficient for every need that you have in life? Is, is Jesus Christ the one you run to from your own human perspective? Is He the one you run to when things are good? And when things from your own human perspective are not so good. Is Jesus Christ enough? Is He enough? Or is He unreachable in your own mind? When life is getting tough, when life is going not so good, and even when life seems to be going as good as it could possibly go, is Jesus Christ reachable is he enough is he enough i was i was thinking of this just this week when our neighbor from directly across the street we woke up one morning and there were police cars in front of the home and and then i was watching out the window wondering what was going on and i noticed some of the police cars left and detective cars showed up and i could only imagine what was going on because of my own memories of things and realizing that one of the family members had passed away, had died. This family across the street who has at one point attended one of our services was dealing, thrust into the reality of dealing with pain and loss and grief. And so I was thinking of this because we will be able to tell in our own lives, to what extent we truly believe our answer to that question. However we answer that question in our own heart, we, be, we will be able to tell exactly if we truly believe that answer by how we live in and through the circumstances of life. How we deal with what God allows in our life. At each moment of life, we can know what we truly believe, and if we truly believe that Christ is sufficient when we actually walk by coming to Him in those times. When we actually carry out in our life the reality that when we say, yes, He is sufficient, do we actually go to Him in those times? For us as Christians, this is an hour by hour Moment by moment, day by day, walk of faith. That's what we're talking about here. Each and every moment of life, each and every detail of life, each and everything that comes our way in all of life is a moment by moment, minute by minute, day by day time by which we have an opportunity and ought to be walking by faith. And so when from our own perspective things are going good, it seems very easy to say, it seems very easy to even express a belief that Jesus Christ is sufficient because the potholes of life don't seem all that large. They seem rather small, even somewhat non-existent. But when the times start to get rough, those minutes and hours and days when the potholes in the road don't seem so small at all, in fact, they seem like they're going to swallow us up. <coughs> How do we answer that question? Is Christ sufficient? He's sufficient for us? That's the question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning. Because it is this question, and it is the answer to that question that we see in the ministry of Jesus Christ as we follow Him here in Luke's Gospel, primarily here in Luke chapter 8. You remember, hopefully from our study, beginning back in chapter 8 and verse 22, you remember that Jesus has already 
begun to unfold the reality of His sufficiency and absolute authority over all things. He has demonstrated that fact by exercising His power over the forces of nature and over the, the demonic world. There is no need to fear the forces of nature as they come about in our world. There is no need to even contemplate any kind of sense of trying to come against the demonic world in and of ourselves. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the sufficient one. He is the one in whom we can trust and He will deliver us both in this life and in the life to come. And so when natural events happen, there's no need to fear. There's no need to be dismayed because Jesus is sufficient for us. Even if through some natural disaster, He might allow us to have our temporal life taken from us. And there is no need to think about or try to control demonic forces. We cannot anyway, we are not ever told to do that anyway in Scripture as a child of God. We are only told that we are to stand fast in the truth, as Ephesians 6 tells us when we put on the armor of God. We stand in the truth, and so we can just trust Christ. And so it's with all of that as a brief background that we come to chapter 8, verses 40 through 48. 40 to 48. And as we look at this this morning, we really, we really should, in, in our minds at least, expand that out to verse 56, because there really are two miracles taking place here in this text. One is dealing with a humanly incurable disease. A woman physically diseased and can find no cure for that by human means. And the other is dealing with death itself. The inevitable reality facing them right in their face of the death of a loved one. But I, I, I want us to, to just walk through this and take these one at a time. And so we're going to just begin to look at the first one this morning, and and I'll read it for us, beginning in verse 40, and go down through 48. It's it's introduced to us by introducing both of them to us, and yet we're only going to just begin to scratch the surface really on this this morning. Following with me in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40, and as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house, because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him, and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that the power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him. And declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I can can think of nothing in this world more frightening to the human race in our reality of life than the reality of future judgment. Future judgment. Many might say that they have fear of other things more than that. Some might say they fear death more than that. Others might say heights. Others might say flying things and spiders and snakes and even some would say I fear public speaking over anything. But in reality all men fear judgment the most. And the one profound evidence is that mankind has an insatiable desire to avoid it. It doesn't matter how it may come, whether through some kind of 
health program in which they desire to prolong better health habits or through some advance in medicine to help them overcome some disease or stem the spread of some disease to prolong life. In the end, all attempts are being made in order to forego the inevitable, which is death, and death comes judgment. This is exactly what the Bible tells us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, For it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So what man truly fears is not necessarily death itself, but what death ushers in. And death ushers in the inevitable reality of judgment. Judgment follows death. Judgment by a holy God. Judgment concerning an unholy life. That is what is feared about death. Even men who reject God altogether are striving to prolong life in order to to avoid the inevitable which will come because they have a reality given to them by God Himself that judgment is coming after that. And so all men, even proclaimed atheists, know that there is a God. Why? Because God has made it so in their own hearts, even though they suppress that truth in their own unrighteousness. And so death shows them that every day. The reality of death. Talking this morning in adult Sunday school class about the beginnings of life and the study of Genesis and just kind of cracking the the shell of that entire study. And Al was talking about Darwinism and the, and the realities of what Darwinism foolishly proclaims. And the one thing Darwinism doesn't deal with is origins at all, even though ironically the book is called The Origin of Species. It doesn't deal with the origin of life because the origin of life is God itself whom they deny. And therefore they try to deny the death itself. The great enemy... To all men is death. Death is is inevitable. Death is an inescapable reality in life. And when it comes to all of the pain and sorrow to our hearts, the greatest thing that brings it is death. Why? Because God has made each one of us to be relational people. And When relationships are altered by death, the result is emotional pain. The result is suffering. In fact, every time I drive to our church, there's a constant reminder of me as I pass by the cemetery in the center of town that all human beings are mortal beings and judgment through death is inevitable. So the great enemy to all of us is death. In fact, the Bible declares that men are held captive by it. And therefore, what man seek to find rest from in his relentless run is from the chase of death. And if we're going to be able to rest from any fear and death being one of them, then we better rest in the one who can conquer death. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to conquer death. Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 15 says that He came in order to deliver all those who through the fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. That's what life is without Christ. It's a slavery to the avoidance of death. It's slavery to the avoidance of judgment. A striving after nonsense. A striving after the wind in order to try to avoid the inevitable which is coming and that is judgment. Many people will trust in all kinds of things. Many will try to appease their conscience about the inevitable reality of death. Many trust in religious gurus. Gurus that come and go. The distinguishing difference between all of the gurus that have come and gone and Jesus Christ is that the graves of all the religious gurus who have ever come in this world other than Jesus Christ, all those are still full. You can dig up all the gurus throughout the ages in the world's history and their graves are still full, their bones are still there, and yet Jesus Christ's grave has been empty since the third day after they put Him there. 
grand evidence that Jesus Christ is God was not only that he raised from the dead, but that he had the power also to raise others from the dead and to cure that which was incurable by mankind. That's what we get a glimpse of here in Luke chapter 8. Two miracles, both humanly hopeless, but the human despair and the hopelessness of man only serves to reveal once again the absolute sufficiency of Christ for every situation. He is sufficient not only for our human temporal needs, He is sufficient for most importantly our greatest need of all, and that is salvation from sin's guilt. Jesus came to earth and He did miracles. He did miracles in order to verify before the eyes of a watching world that He Himself has the divine power to reverse the effects of sin. He has the divine power to restore righteousness, to restore peace and rest to His creation. And Jesus did a lot of miracles. A lot of miracles because of His compassion for the people. He healed and He cleansed people continuously. But not simply for their sakes. He performed miracles to verify His deity. He performed miracles to establish before the watching world that He is absolutely sufficient for every need. That you need no one else. That Jesus Christ is all we need. And so here in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40, going all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 46, there are miracles here. There is a miracle within a miracle. And a compassionate portrayal of Jesus Christ's power and His sensitivity to people in time of need. You notice, just in this short passage that I read, Jesus is dealing with two people. Two people from completely opposite sides of the spectrum, socially speaking. One man is very well known. One man is very influential in his community. He is known by many of the people, if not all of the people. And the other is an outcast of society. She isn't in the the corporate group at all. In fact, she would have been treated such that she would have been outside the corporate group because of her illness. And yet, both of them have one thing in common. Both of them have great need. And the greatest helper is Jesus Christ. And so I want us this morning just to walk through these miracles. Just begin this morning. We'll just cover a few verses, but I've chosen to break it up this way. Number one, the requested presence by the synagogue official. The requested presence by the synagogue official. We'll see that in verses 40 through 42. And really what I want us to focus on, and this is all I really want us to take away this morning as we, we get there and we unfold it, but you'll see that Jesus is reachable. Jesus is reachable. The second thing that we're going to see as we walk through this over the next coming weeks is the number two, the reluctance, persistence of this woman. The reluctant persistence of this woman. Verses 43 to 48. And what I want us to, to unfold there or just see kind of rise to the surface through this narrative passage is that Jesus is, is botherable. Jesus is not just reachable, but Jesus is also botherable. And then thirdly, verses 49 to 56, the resulting power of Christ to raise the dead. So the requested presence by the synagogue official in verses 40 to 42, the reluctant persistence of this woman in verses 43 to 48, And then lastly, the resulting power of Christ to raise the dead in verses 49 to 56. Jesus is reachable. Jesus is botherable. And third, Jesus' power is inexhaustible. Let's just begin to look at this then with number one, the requested presence by the synagogue official, verses 40 through 42. And we're just going to walk through this, like I said, and make some observations as we go along. Verse 40 simply says this, And Jesus returned... The people welcomed him, for they had been waiting 
for him. You remember that Jesus had been across the Sea of Galilee. He was in the town of Gerasa. Luke doesn't give us much detail about why he wanted to go over there. But Mark's gospel fills in a little bit of the detail for us and says that initially he had gone over there just to kind of get some time away. To get away from the crowds. The crowds were always crushing on him. They were they were always there. Ministry was always busy. There was no real downtime for Jesus when he was walking through these towns and villages. But as always as it is, he was rarely alone. The apostles were with him continuously. The other boats, as we saw last time we were here in Luke chapter 8, had gone with him. And they sailed from across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to this Gentile area to the southeast. And so he had gone over for some relief from this nonstop crushing of the crowds, constantly on him, constantly requiring of him, and everyone needs some time to just take a deep breath from time to time. Even our Lord and his humanity needed that. And so they all went across to the Sea of Galilee to get away for a time. But as we know, when they got to the other side, you remember what happened, right? Jesus steps out of the boat and he's immediately met by this maniac raving lunatic who was a demon-possessed man who had been in that condition for quite some time. And of course, Jesus all along knows what's going to happen. He's God in the flesh. He knows what he's going over there really to do. And Jesus, Jesus delivers the man and saves him and turns him immediately into a missionary. Jesus says to him in verse 39, return to your house and describe what great things, not I've done for you, but what great things God has done for you. Jesus not only saves this man, but he tells him, listen, you go tell people what God has done, i.e. the reality that I am God and I'm the one who changed your life. You go tell them about me. And of course, the people in the area are so scared by the authority of the power of Jesus Christ to overcome demons, to change the unchangeable. This man had been in chains for quite some time. The people were fearing of him. He always beat up whoever came by. And here he is sitting in his right mind, clothed, as verse 35 says, they become highly frightened. And so what frightened them more than the maniac was the power of Jesus to change the maniac. And so what did Jesus do? He left. He left, but he didn't leave them without a witness. He left the man there. The man wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus said, no, you need to go back home and tell them about me. And so Jesus does exactly what the people ask him to do. And verse 40 says then, as Jesus returned, as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him. Why? Because they had all been waiting for him. They had all been waiting and waiting and waiting. So it was no doubt a huge crowd. The crowd is there once again waiting for him. And in it would have been all the people who were hurting emotionally, all of those people who were suffering from some kind of affliction. They would have been painful sicknesses, things like that with these people, handicapped, disabled people, deaf and blind people, people of every kind of physical problem you would think of. They were all there waiting for Jesus to return. And so you could well imagine if you were in that crowd, if you were one of those people, the anxiousness of your heart would have been stirring possibly for hours and hours and hours as you were waiting, not knowing when Jesus might come back by. And so the level of anxiousness is at a fever pitch in the minds and hearts of these people. And one of them is a man named Jairus. Jairus tells us he was an official of the synagogue. That simply means he was a ruler in the synagogue. I'll talk about that in a minute, just in a little more detail. But he had a 12-year-old daughter. In fact, it was his only daughter. She was 12 years old, verse 41 and 42 says, and she was dying. She was dying. We don't know what she was dying from, but the reality is she had some kind of sickness, some kind of illness that was on the verge of taking her life. 
I don't know what it would have been like if I were Jairus. I'm not sure what that feels like or what that emotional sense is. I've never been in those shoes. I can only speculate because I've never been in that particular situation having a 12-year-old daughter who's on her deathbed. But I can only think that he has, as he's waiting, as he's thinking about Jesus and waiting for Jesus in hopes that Jesus would turn, his potential anxiety would now be even at a heightened place also. Hurry up, I hope he gets back. This is taking her. He's the only one who can fix this. So he and the crowd knew what Jesus could do. They heard of his miracles. They had seen some of his miracles performed. It was all they could do to contain themselves, just waiting for his return so that the healings could continue. It's interesting to me to see what Jesus does. Because that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus comes back to them. The first thing that I want us to notice about Jesus Christ as Jesus comes back to all these people is just that that point that I made when I was laying out the outline. He is reachable. Jesus is reachable to all men. He's not like religious gurus of our day. We live in a day and age of Christian celebrityism that sometimes is nauseating because there are people who are in the Christian realm who who consider themselves or even treat as if they're celebrities and no one could get near them if you ever wanted to or ever tried. And they're not Jesus. When I spent time in the Air Force, I was an enlisted man. I had a lot of friends who were in the officer realm and officers and enlisted people typically didn't co-mingle together and yet I always had some comfortability with the officers and we all knew they put their pants on the same way we did one leg at a time well this is the reality with people of our day they're just like us they're not some super spiritual person that you can't get near you should be able to get near them And Jesus is a great example for us, particularly here in this case, even though the the major point about his sufficiency is overarching at all. This is just a highlight to me. He's not some elite. He's not some secluded kind of spiritual guru. He didn't try to hide himself away from the people. In fact, his entire ministry was spent in public with the people. Wherever he came, He came in contact with the people. And so we can clearly notice as you you even look through the life of Christ, as you read through the Gospels and you see the life of Christ, on only a few occasions did He ever attempt to isolate Himself. And then only was He isolating Himself for the purpose of prayer and to give greater instruction to those who He were followers of His, already who believed in Him. So he came to be with the people. He's reachable. It was the people he came to preach to. It was the people he came to give the good news that God would forgive sin. They would just repent and believe upon him. God would come and live in them and live with them. So it was the crowds that he came to, even though it was the same kind of crowd that in just a short time later would be crying out for his death. Crucify him, crucify him. They were looking for solutions, not always the right solution. We even know in John chapter 6, these same crowds in Capernaum were there after Jesus feeds them. In fact, you notice in chapter 9, beginning in verse 12, is that account of the feeding of the 5,000. Shortly after that account, thousands of people leave him because he doesn't give them exactly what they want. But they're looking for solutions. They want solutions to their human, physical, and social problems. In the end, they reject him because he is their spiritual, eternal answer, and that's not what they truly want. And so in this crowd is this man named Jairus. Jairus, synagogue official. Synagogue official just simply means that he was the chief official of the synagogue. The chief official of the synagogue in Capernaum, the city that Jesus basically had as his home city for launching the Galilean ministry. So he was the highest ranking religious official probably in the town of Capernaum. And so he would have known Jesus. 
He didn't simply know him as this miracle worker who was doing things. He knew Jesus in in a more intimate way, in a more personal way. As a synagogue official, he would have been responsible for all of the administration, all of the operation within the synagogue. Any teaching that took place, he was the one who gave the approval. Any decisions that needed to be made concerning the synagogue, he was the one who made the decision. Any disputes that took place among people within the synagogue, he was the one who arbitrated those decisions. So being the ranking official of the synagogue meant that he was in a close relationship not only with the people of Capernaum, but with other scribes and Pharisees from other towns because he was potentially even one of those, a Pharisee himself. And so we already know from our study of the other Gospels that Pharisees weren't fond of Jesus Christ, at least the majority. But here the text tells us, you notice, that a man named Jairus comes, he's the official of the synagogue, and what does he do? He falls at Jesus' feet. In fact, you notice the words in verse 41, and there came a man named Jairus, if you look in Mark's Gospel, I believe it says, and behold, behold, the word behold is a word that indicates shock. It's like, hey, sit up and pay attention to this. This isn't normal. This isn't what you normally see. You ought to notice from Luke's words that Jairus comes, and he comes, and to bow at the feet of Jesus was pretty shocking stuff. That's that's Luke's intent here. There came a man named Jairus. He's the synagogue official. That that heightens this idea. And, And he falls at Jesus' feet. All of those words are are words for us to sit up and take notice and go, wait a minute, this isn't normal. This this is shocking. This is desperation time in this man's life. This is a time when this man didn't care who saw him do what he's doing. This was no clandestine event in the darkness. This is out in the open. The crowd is there. Jairus comes. People know who he is. They know what he is. And he bows down to Jesus. That's shocking. Shocking. He's an elder in the church. Great respect in his community and in his town. Devoted to the religion of Judaism. Trusted in terms of wisdom. Trusted in terms of his knowledge of the Old Testament. Probably a Pharisee. Might even have heard of the underground plot to kill Jesus Christ in just a short time. And yet, when catastrophe strikes his own family, when the pothole in his life is large, Jesus is there. And he turns to Jesus. And Jesus is reachable. Jesus is reachable. All religious battles have been sidelined in his mind. They're not even there. The circumstance has reduced him to a grief-stricken father who falls at Jesus' feet. Notice what verse 41 says, and he began to implore him to come to his house. Implore. That means to beg. Beg. He's pleading with Jesus out of a desperate heart. Desperation has flooded his heart. There's nothing else he can do. He has no hope. His daughter is going to die. This is his last ditch effort. All of his religious connections, all of what the fellow scribes and Pharisees might think of him, he doesn't care about any of that now. All he cares about is that he get to Jesus and Jesus get to his daughter. I need Jesus, and I need Him to come with me. I need to have Jesus in this. It was what he knew. What he heard about Jesus that prompted him to come. As Luke, verse 42, says why he was so urgent. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, And she was dying. Mark's gospel gives us a little more vivid detail. 
Mark tells us that he said this, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come, lay your hands on her, that she will get well and live. You see, Luke's gospel is, is highlighting the reality that, and the shock of this guy even coming to Jesus, which highlights the reality of who Jesus is and the ability of Jesus Christ because Jesus is sufficient over all things. And Mark's gospel is showing the desperation in this and the sense of the seedbed of faith that he knows Jesus Christ can do it. Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the only answer. If he comes, he can make her live. He has the power of life. He wanted what any father would naturally want. He wanted her alive. And rightly so to a Jewish father. This was his only daughter and she was 12 years of age. From him it was like losing a daughter right in the prime of life. The age where she was going to be married potentially. Sounds rather odd to us to think of it that way, but this was the time when young girls in the Jewish community become a, a, an adult woman. It's the bat mitzvah you hear about, which is, the, which is the equal to the bar mitzvah, which is the boy. They become adults at those things. They're recognized as one who is an adult. And, and this is her age. Marriage for a father in ancient days is this highly celebrated time. He's, he's giving his daughter away. And believe it or not, 12 was the marrying age at the time of Christ. At least for the Jews. But he believed Jesus could make her well. He had faith that Jesus could heal. Something that was hard to find in a ruler of the synagogue. Something that probably was in his heart cultivated over time as he just interacted with Jesus himself. We don't know that. Luke doesn't tell us that, but we can imagine those kinds of things. I think in a right kind of way, since Jesus was in and about that place and was in the synagogue every time he was there. So someone believing in Jesus, someone believing in his power, someone humbling himself in this way, someone bowing at the feet of Jesus in honor of Jesus. Don't come and bow before Christ. They want help from Christ, but they want no interest. They have no interest in submitting to Christ. They want Jesus to fix their problems. Come to Jesus, He'll fix your problems. In fact, some people in evangelicalism preach Jesus that way, that Jesus is the answer. He'll fix your problems. That's all He is, a cosmic uh, handout. He will, he will fix all your daily problems so it'll be good for you. You'll have no trouble in life. And that's not what Jesus is about at all. Jesus says, if you come to me, you must follow me. We're not sure if Jairus would have had that problem. The text doesn't tell us. We know this. Verse 56 clearly tells us her parents were amazed. Jesus obviously raises her from the dead. Or, and her parents are amazed. And he instructs them to tell no one what had happened. Jesus doesn't want to be known as someone who just solves earthly problems. Jesus is known as the one who saves your soul from hell. So he had a faith that Jesus could heal. Jairus may have had, have been a man of faith, we're not sure. Verse 50 tells us when he heard this, he answered and said, do not be afraid any longer, only believe and she will be made well. Jesus says, listen, don't, don't listen to the naysayers outside. Believe, have faith. It's the same word we have in the original language for faith. Have faith, Jairus. We're not sure if Jairus had that faith. Certainly his parents were amazed, her parents were amazed. Jairus certainly would have been grateful for the reachableness of Jesus. 
how grateful Jairus must have been that Jesus wasn't like the so-called charlatans we see today who call themselves faith healers. Jesus wasn't like that. The faith healers of our day, they remain unreachable. And they remain unreachable because that's where they ought to be unreachable because they're frauds. They're frauds. Don't get too close to them. You'll find it out. They can't heal at all. They only make themselves available to those who have been screened. Those who actually don't need any physical help. It's all a stage charade. Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus wasn't a fraud. Because he wasn't a fraud, he's reachable to everybody. Reachable to everybody. And I think that is what makes Jesus reachable or his reachableness so exciting to us. I think that's what makes just sitting here and reveling in this and and, and like a, a, a nice hot tub of water that you sit in and just relax. You just sit here and let the, let the scene and the surroundings soak. What makes it so wonderful is not only is he reachable to everybody, as we will see, he's, he's, he's crossing the spectrum of social acceptability here when it comes to him and this woman. But what makes it so exciting is that Jesus is more importantly reachable to us, not as a crowd, but individually. Individually. In other words, he's reachable in person to me. He's reachable in person to you. And I think sometimes we forget this. We forget that that in the midst of our struggle, we think that Jesus has just given up on us. Jesus isn't with me anymore. And the reality is, in those moments, what really has happened is Jesus hasn't given up on us. It's not that He isn't reachable. It's that we have forgotten that He's reachable. We think He's abandoned us, but really we've abandoned Him. Look at what Jesus does. Look at what Jesus does. Verse 42. But as he went. (laughs) I love that. But as he went. I was reading one commentator who said it this way. Jesus could have said, don't you know what I'm doing? Hey, Jairus, back up a little bit, pal. Don't you know? Don't you understand how busy I am here? I mean, my schedule's full, brother. You realize I got a whole look, look behind you. I got a line of people behind you. What makes you think you're just can bust in here? I got a whole lot of folks here. You think I, I got time to just be carted off to your house, carted off to your problem? Lots of people have problems. Jesus didn't say any of that. Why? Because Jesus was reachable. By the crowds, and he's reachable by the individuals in the crowd. But as he went, as he went, beloved, this is the way it is with God's heart toward us. This is the way it is. This is the only point I want us to understand today as we as we think about this, as we just sit here on this. Jesus is reachable to you and to me. In every need, and most importantly, in our greatest need. He's not just concerned about our humanity in general. He's not just concerned, as as concerned as God is with our temporal life here and now, and He is concerned with that. He has orchestrated and controls every circumstance that He allows in our lives so that we will see Him, so that we will understand His grace, so that we will run to Him. But more importantly, he's concerned with our greatest need. He actually and truly cares about us personally. There's no inaccessibility with Jesus here. I love that. His whole ministry was in the midst of the crowd who needed the message of forgiveness. That's what they needed. And it was in the midst of the crowd so that he might reach the heart of each individual. 
Everyone who was around Jesus, everyone who heard Jesus, they heard what Jesus said, and that message went to all of them. Not just as a crowd, but individually. And then that message was on their heart, and they had to hear it, and they had to make a decision about it, and they had to say, I will follow or I'm not following that guy. This is what I want us to remember and meditate on this morning as we look at Christ. Because not only was he reachable from the people, but because of his compassion for the lost, he reached to the people. Not only can we go to Christ, but Christ reaches to us. God in Christ demonstrated that he was God and that he could have done many things to effectively prove this point. He could have done all kinds of things to prove his point. I mean, Jesus Christ, according to Colossians 1, is the one who created all things. Nothing has been created without him. He is the one who created it all. And here is Jesus Christ. He could have just done whatever he wanted. He could have spoke the world of humanity, healed and not affected by any disease, into existence. He could have just spoke a word. Healthy people immediately exist. But he didn't do that. Instead, in order to reveal who he was and the power that he has and the sufficiency that he is, he healed sick people. Why? Because I believe that not only did he want each one of us to know that he is without a doubt God, but also that being God, he is personally reachable to those who will come to him. He's reachable for our greatest need. I mean, remember who Luke's writing to back in chapter 1? Luke's writing to his friend Theophilus. Theophilus, I want you to know this. I'm writing all these things to you so that you will what? Have certainty about the things you've been taught. You've heard about Jesus. You've heard that, that he's all, that he can heal, that he can do all these things. Well, I'm going I'm to tell you about exactly what he did so that you'll have certainty about that. Don't ever doubt that reality, beloved, in, our, in your life. Don't ever doubt the reality that no matter what is taking place in your life, Jesus Christ is there. He's with you. He's caring for you. He's taking care of the issue. He's allowing your heart to be challenged and stretched in every way that he has designed it for your good and for his glory. God, Jesus Christ in the flesh intimately knows your situation. He knows your hurts. He knows your pains. He knows all your needs. And he's reachable to you. It's unfortunate. I, I see this sometimes in my own heart. The last place we want to run to is to the things of God. The last place we want to run in times of trouble sometimes is away from where we need to go. And that just simply tells us we know what the truth is. We just don't want it to be so difficult. We want it easy. And God says, listen, easy doesn't grow you. Easy doesn't grow you. Walk with me and it will be easy. He's reachable, beloved. He's reachable to all of us corporately. He's reachable to all of us individually. He is absolutely sufficient to meet every need in our life. And His provision for us in our circumstances is exactly what we need. Let's not forget that. Let me say it again. He's reachable to all of us, and His provision in our circumstance is exactly what we need. And for Jesus Christ, it's personal. You say, really? It's personal? Yeah, He gave His life for our greatest need. He gave Himself for us. Our greatest need, He gave Himself to save us from our sin. This is Jesus Christ. This is God. Reachable. 
sufficient for our every need. And so Jairus comes to Jesus, brushes off all the cares of his everyday life, and Jesus has him right where he needs him. It's all orchestrated by the providential hand of God in order to demonstrate the sufficiency of Jesus Christ over all things. And in the midst of it all, here is a synagogue official, a high-ranking man, well-known, comes to Jesus, humbled by the circumstance. And Jesus has got him right where he wants him. He's been reachable to Jesus. And in the verses to follow, the reachableness of Jesus is seen as he fully heals this woman with a reluctant persistence to get to Jesus. And so Jesus is not only reachable, but Jesus is botherable. He's botherable. We can bother him. He's good for it. But I'm going to stop there because if I don't, you'll bother me. We're going to get that next time. What a, what a wonder. What a majestic privilege it is to just sit on the outside like a fly on the wall and watch Jesus interact. Think about our own life. Put ourselves in the shoes of Jairus, our shoes of this woman, and see just how Jesus handles life. Well, I hope that's helpful to our hearts. Let's never forget that Christ is sufficient for all, all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a time this morning, just this quick, really quick overview of what is to come, the beauty and majesty of you on display, your sufficiency in everything. We've already seen your power over nature, your power over demonic realm. And now you reveal your power over sickness and death. All of that is a picture of what you really came to do, and that is to save us from our sin. No man could do it. It took God, it took you in the flesh to do it, come to die, to pay the penalty that we might have life. I pray that each one here who has heard these words would contemplate their own heart before you. If they do not know you by faith, that they would trust you. They would come to know you and begin to walk by faith. Not allow the circumstances of life which you have, through your sovereign providence, allowed to cause them to forget you. Lord, we know you love us and care for us. So help us in those moments to trust you. That you might be glorified and that we might grow in Christ's likeness. We give you thanks for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.